I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Charlie Arnott, CEO of the Center for Food Integrity and founder of Look East. We're glad you're here. I'm working on keeping food trustworthy. And I'm Susan Schwally, president of the food and beverage practice at the MPD Group, where we help clients make great decisions based on what consumers actually do. And I'm Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Kevin. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> and I'm Kevin Ryan. I'm your resident food nerd, and I led strategy and innovation at General Mills, and I'm now CEO of Malachite Strategy and Research, helping bring innovative products to market. And we are the Three Squares. Dishing on the food industry. And Three Squares is fortunate to have support from General Mills. Today's special guest is Jason Lusk. But first, what's a good appetizer discussion? Let's see what's on the menu. You know, with all the supply chain disruption going on and things coming in and out, Charlie, are you having a hard time getting the supplies for your smoke butt? It's a good question. And it's something I spend quite a bit of time obsessing about because you have to have all the right ingredients. And I think there are 10 or 12 ingredients in the rub. And the rub recipe came from a Kansas City barbecue winner. And he shared it with me confidentially, right? This is his private rub recipe. So I get all the ingredients and some of them, I even use a mortar and pestle that came from my wife's grandfather when he worked at the pharmacy college and grind them up in that, right? And then it's, it's basting it with the material I get from North Carolina barbecue. North Carolina barbecue sauce, vinegar sauce, deep basting that two days before it's ready to put on the smoker and then rubbing it and letting all those, those flavors permeate the muscle. And you got to be able to get the charcoal and you got to get the right wood chips to go with that. And so you got to have the butt, you got to have the charcoal, you got to have the ingredients for the rub, you got to have the barbecue sauce from North Carolina. All of these things have to come together so the next morning on a cold, crisp fall morning before a football game, you can step out on the patio and smell that smoked pork butt and know it's going to be a great day. Right. But it, it really is an illustration of the complexity of the supply chain. Right. Charlie Smoked Butt, an introduction to Econ 101. <laughs> Is it fair to say the reason why I can't find my Cliff Builders protein bars because they can't, it's complex and they are having a hard time sourcing all the different ingredients that go into it, like Charlie's butt? (laughs) What about the saltine shortage I keep experiencing? I would think, I would think that's very complex. That's what it is. It has, there's a lot of different pieces. And in some cases, it's just the packaging, right? It could be the little plastic sleeve that keeps the saltines fresh. You're absolutely right, though, the way you're talking about it, Charlie. Even though you say you have 12 ingredients, you have the mortar and pestle, you have the charcoal, that's a great representation of how, you know, CPG works, is that there are those different components of both the product and the manufacturing aspect of it. And each of them are, you know, you need to have each of them in order for it to get out onto the shelf, you know, get into distributors on time. So, I mean... I've seen many of that type of thing within CPG, whether or not it's yogurt or cereal or whatever it may be, that if you don't have one thing, a lot of these uh, recipes or specs, they don't have that many different substitutions that they can make. And if you, uh, you, know, if you don't have that ingredient in time, then everything gets backed up, uh, you know, basically in the manufacturing side of it, and you don't have a window in order to ship. It gets really complicated really fast as, as, as ingredients and, uh, you know, machine time, uh, run time, all that kind of stuff gets, gets, uh, gets backed up. So 
Yeah, no, the supply chain, any little blip in the supply chain, everything runs really quick and it's a tight ship, basically. So if something gets backed up, it's going to be an issue. So Kevin, I mean, we, I'm, I'm hearing anecdotally from people in different companies that they're, they're moving more from just in time to just in case, but are you actually seeing that or is it just more rhetoric at this point in time? Because all of those changes have significant implications for cost structure. No, they absolutely do. I do think that you're seeing a little bit more of a move away from just-in-time, uh, but you have to remember that it's not just a philosophy. There's a lot of uh, systems backing that up, right? You know, you, you've got everything within the, um, you know, the SAP system and a lot of the things that are already kind of pre-triggered to, to load to, you know, to get your supply in there. So I do think that there'll be, uh, you know, uh, expanding the number of suppliers you have expanding the amount of lead time that you have on certain things, but it's not really a, a, a flip flipping of the switch that they can do overnight. But I do think that you're going to see a lot more of that kind of um, insulation, so to speak, when it comes to, um, you know, uh, how much ingredients in that. But ingredients, you know, in a warehouse are, you know, money locked up. Uh, so they're going to have to be a balance um, uh, to get away from that. So, and some of that might come out in you know, other costs. So we'll see. Great conversation, guys. Appreciate that very much. I am so excited today that we're going to have Jason Lusk, who chairs the Ag Econ Department at Purdue and is on virtually every media channel that you can imagine. I don't know if the guy ever sleeps, but we're excited to have him as our guest today. And we'll catch up with him right after this from General Mills. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at generalmills.com. Hey, Susan, Kevin, I am so excited today to be able to bring Jason Lusk onto the Three Squares podcast. We're going to talk about food inflation, and there's probably no one on the planet who's more knowledgeable. I would read his entire bio, but it would take two episodes. So I'm just going to truncate it here to give you the highlights. Uh, Jason currently serves as Distinguished Professor and Head of the Agriculture Economics Department at Purdue University. He's a food and agricultural economist who studies what we eat and why we eat it. So, Susan, right up your alley. Uh, since 2000, he's published more than 250 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals on a wide assortment of topics. He's been listed as one of the most prolific and cited food and agricultural economists of the past two decades. He's written a number of books. His most recent book, Unnaturally Delicious, How Science and Technology Are Serving Up Superfoods to Save the World, was published in 2016. And the penultimate accomplishment of his career is he's appearing here on Three Squares. So... Jason, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. I'll add that three squares appearance to my bio. That'd be great. Yeah. So we're going to start talking about food inflation. And I want to share a couple of quotes from some recent earnings calls to kind of set the stage and uh, introduce some of the conflicting philosophies or approaches that we're seeing to this whole question. Uh, McDonald's chief financial officer, Kevin Ozen, uh, it's fair to say that there is commodity pressure going into 2022. Just to give a perspective, in 2021 in the U.S., our food and paper costs were up about 4% for the year. If we look forward to 2022, our expectation is it'll be about double. Interesting, he says, now most of the pressure or more of that pressure will be in the first half of the year. As the year progresses, we expect that to ease somewhat. Uh, CEO of Mondelez, Dirk Vendeput, said, as we found in our State of the Snacking survey, the tendency for daily snacking is up for a third consecutive year. 
And although 70% of global consumers report concerns about inflation, it has done little to date to change their grocery shopping behavior. This is consistent with the observed price elasticity. And then finally, the thing that I find interesting, the FAO Food Price Index continues to show year-over-year price increases in key commodities globally, but has all of that yet been factored into CPG or retail pricing? So it, it feels like a pretty dynamic environment where we don't have a lot of answers, but what the heck's going on? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I So maybe I'll give you an answer that's too long in response to a big question. I, I think about three interrelated buckets of answers that explain some of the price inflation we're seeing now. The first one is basically macroeconomic factors. If you look at data from the Federal Reserve, they calculate money supply, just how much money is in the economy. And there's a huge increase right after the pandemic due to the response of our federal government to try to you know, ease the pain of people that had lost their jobs and otherwise. But the policy pumped a lot of money into the economy. And you can see that in other ways, too. The, the sa- aggregate savings rate also rose quite dramatically, probably you know as high as we've seen in a really long time. So people had money, they put it in their savings accounts. All that money has to go somewhere. If you have more money, same amount of goods, it means the value of each dollar is smaller. So prices have to rise in order to allocate the scarce resources that exist. So that that's one answer. Uh, then like any good economist, I'm going to say the other answers are demand and supply. So part in sort of response to that extra money people had, there was a lot of demand. People had money, they had money to spend. They went out, they spent more money on durables, but also seemed to spend more on food. So food spending has been rising. Interestingly, both food at home and food away from home is up over 20% compared to the start of the pandemic. It's not just been domestically, but there's been a lot of demand foreign buying partners for U.S. products. So in particular, you know, a lot of our meat products, pork and beef, big increases last year in demand for those products. Then on the, the supply side of things, the cost side of things, you know, we, we get all the stories related to the pandemic, supply chain disruptions and whatnot. You know, I think the story, the broad story that's sort of been around from the start of the pandemic are the labor issues, the great resignation, so to speak. So companies are having a hard time finding enough workers. So they're having a hard time running at capacity at a time there's strong demand. And then the workers they can't get, they're paying more. Um, so in a lot of our food processing, food retailing and you know, grocery sectors, your know, wage rates have increased 10 to 20 percent, depending on the exact sector. So the, the other uh, cost side issue is commodity prices have been rising as well. Some have been weather events in the Midwest and other growing areas, South America, Brazil. So that's impacted supplies of corn and soybeans. So that gets reflected in meat prices. Uh, so it's a whole confluence of events. I think one thing I will say is, uh, you know, my personal view is that not much of it is explained by uh you know, greed and, and concentration in the food processing or meat processing sectors, which is something that's been in the news a lot. And right. my main thinking there is it's hard to explain a change with a constant. So my general assumption is those businesses are always greedy before the pandemic and now too. And so we could talk about that more if y'all want, but that, that's another explanation I've heard out there. It's probably one I personally don't put as much weight on as perhaps some others do. So I'm going to follow up on that. And then this is for you and, and I'd like students input on this one as well. Um, asking you to kind of wear a slightly different hat thinking about behavioral e- economics. But what's the impact on all of this on consumer psychology and purchasing decisions? Uh, you know, Mondelez said, we're not seeing it. So what do you see? And then, Susan, what does your data show? I mean, I'd say uh, I love it when I hear a CEO talking about elasticities of demand. You know, that's like right up my alley that we did some economic education somewhere along the way. 
So, you know, what kind of what you're saying there is demand is inelastic. Consumers want you know, the same amount of food regardless of the price. And uh, that, that does appear to be what, what we're seeing, that demand is strong enough that consumers are willing to, to buy those prices. Some of it is those higher wages that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. They're able to pay more. But I, I do think some of the ex- uh, inflation is driven by expectations. Right. And to the extent consumers expect that there's going to be inflation, that can cause more inflation, uh, which is sort of an interesting kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think early on, we weren't seeing consumers thinking that it was sort of temporary and there was all that this word, you know, transitory or not. I think maybe those expectations are increasing a little bit, although we did a survey last month and asked consumers about their expectations about inflation in the coming uh, months. And actually, their expectations were much lower than what we've been experiencing. So. Uh, maybe that's some good news. You know, so I know you're going to softly correct me if I if I go off the rails here. So here's what I'm seeing and I think is going on. So I, I really value your input on this. I think about food from the total share of stomach perspective. Everything that consumers eat in home and away from home is, do you? You know, prior to the pandemic, we were around an 80-20 split in terms of occasions where they sourced from. So about 20% came from food service and 80% retail food that you made at home. That's elevated now. And we have seen that um, companies have been posting strong double digit um, and grocery retail. The thing is, the cost per in-home occasion versus a restaurant meal, there's a really wide gap there. So I don't know that the consumers are actually spending more in aggregate on food because they've eaten out less. It used to be a $50-$50 split on that 80-20 occasion split. That whole paradigm has been shifted. And that's where we hear all these stories about consumers' premiumization. They're stepping up. If you're in the middle, you're reaching up. If you're on the bottom, you're reaching to the mid. And I think that explains the elasticity because I'm not spending all this money at the Wendy's drive-thru or wherever. I don't mean to pick on them. That's the point. Um, but I'm not surprised to hear uh, Mr. Vandeput from Mondelez say that he sees elasticity, particularly in snacking, because that's an affordable indulgence. And an experience. So I think the hard thing is, um, you know, obviously these big CPGs are getting squeezed on their bottom line and their margin because their inputs, as you mentioned, are much more expensive, but they are seeing runway and taking prices up. And I, I don't think that they've really maxed out on, on that yet. Uh, Susan, I, you know, you said I was going to gently correct you, but I just am saying amen over here. I think uh, I agree with everything you're saying. One thing that gets a little confused a bit in these discussions about inflation. So what this might get a little bit in the weeds of how they calculate some of these price indices. But what we're talking about is they'll, they'll compare the prices of the same good over time. The Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates the price of food in grocery and they'll calculate a price of food at restaurant. And you're right, those both are sort of increasing. But what it doesn't capture is that substitution. So right. even if prices are going up in both areas, if people are switching and eating more at home, they could actually be spending less. Right. Their uh, buying power might actually increase. Their ability to buy more food has gone up, you know, at the same time that it, uh, um, you know, these these two things are happening. And then, of, of course, no, I think the dynamics we're seeing now are not recessionary. They're sort of on the other end of it. They're sort of because the economy is running hot. <laughs> you know, I think that seems to be more of the concern that some economists have and why you hear these discussions about whether the Fed should increase interest rates because they're worried that we're producing like sort of that if there is such a thing like overcapacity, like we're going to spiral out of control on the positive side of things. To that point, Jason, uh, just a question. How long, and I know everyone asks you this, (laughs) how long is this going to last? That's one. And I guess my second part of that question is, is it going to be long enough that you would suggest CPG companies 
start considering that elasticity is going to change and that private label might start jumping in and being an issue that they need to worry about and they need to take proactive steps? Yeah. Uh, my standard answer is if I knew the answer to that, I would not be at Purdue. I would be at Wall Street on Wall Street and, you know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'd probably be on a beach somewhere with you, Kevin. Um, no, um, I don't have any great uh, forecasting ability, but I, the way I think about this is what needs to, what would have to change for some of this inflation to come back down? And so a couple of things I think about, I mentioned the labor situation. I, I don't think some of the food price increases we've seen are going to go away until the labor market issues kind of resolve themselves. And that's, that's beyond food and ag, that there seems to be something going on nationwide with regard to people's willingness to work as people are sorting out where they want to work, all that sort of stuff. Um, so maybe that's part of it. I think the other issue is just the pandemic itself. Will we return to something that looks more normal? You know, I think that's driving a lot of the disruptions we're seeing now. So I think, you know, on the demand side of things, I do think there are, are some signs. I mentioned those macroeconomic numbers that those savings rates I mentioned are sort of back down to more normal levels. Yep. So that while that could explain some of the phenomena we're seeing maybe six months ago or a year ago, that that doesn't seem like something that could explain things going forward. So that pressure will maybe dissipate in the near the near term. The other thing, of course, too, are you know what is what is the Federal Reserve going to do um, in terms of its macro policy if it starts kind of pushing the brakes on the economy? And they've signaled they're going to raise interest rates, but if they start doing that in a more aggressive way, that that would be a sign too. So that I hope, uh, Kevin, that was a, a dodge to your question, but with a lot of you know, in a very uh, long-winded way that tried to make it sound like I knew uh, the answer. So <laughs> well, I was impressed. I don't know if anybody else was, but I, I I thought you pulled it off quite nicely. Well, I so. think any minute now the Fed's going to come calling. And guys, think about it. We will have <laughs> a Federal Reserve person on That's when Jason makes it. So, okay, so here, let me try. I don't know anything about econ, all right, Jason? But this labor thing, to me, we knew demographically we were going to go into a labor issue, right? The boomers were going to retire and poor little Gen X straining behind and millennials. We, we were headed for problems, right? And then we have the pandemic on top of it. And then, you know, everybody has a new attitude towards, look, did you guys see Belgium's going to a four-day work week? Oh, I hadn't seen that. Wow. Yeah. You get to trial it for six months. And if you want to go back to five days, no harm, no foul, or you can stay at four. Anyway, I digress. The point is, is I don't think labor is ever going to return to what it was. And I don't know that we're ever going to have enough people. So it becomes an issue of how do we get out of this? We have to increase productivity, right? Mm -hmm. So is this where automated tractors come in? I mean, like, what are we talking here? What is the role of technology in ag? And how do we get out of this? Well, so you're right. The baby, baby boomer generation was going to retire. I think we didn't probably anticipate they were all going to retire at the same time. Um, in, in fact, you know, you know, my ag econ department at Purdue, you know, roughly 40 ag economists faculty. I've had 20 retire in the last uh, in the last five years. Oh, wow. So and it's just just the, gener you know, the same generational thing that you mentioned, Susan, either that or they don't like working with me. I'm not sure that could be. <laughs> Are you Gen X? <laughs> I am. Yeah. Well, that solves it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a problem. That's we fun. get a lot of hate. So uh, you're right. It could have been partly predicted, although the speed at which it happened was certainly not one we would have anticipated before the pandemic. So how do we respond? I mean, one is immigration. That's a political hot button, yep. but particularly production ag, particularly fruits and vegetables, it still requires a lot of um, manual labor. Mm -hmm. 
are American citizens willing to do these jobs? You know, what would we have to pay them to get them to do all that? You know, conversation has been around for a long time, but I think that's a part of the conversation. I mean, if you, even if you look at uh, the Census Bureau's estimates of population, they suggest actually, if there's no, if there's no immigration in about, you know, 20 years, we could have net population decline. Right. So that's, a world we've never lived in. I've never lived in. You were talking about that stomach share earlier. So the way we have demand growth and a lot of food and ag is you get more stomachs. <laughs> that's how you get. Yeah. That's sort of the demand that we count on mm-hmm. over time. So the solutions. Yeah. I don't know. It, you know, a couple of things are going to happen. Either uh, there's less supply of labor. Uh, and so wages are going to rise because it's going to take more to get people into the workforce or to, or to allocate that labor because um, it's now a scarcer resource than it was. That's one. And then that will cause some induced innovation. So because labor is now more expensive, we're going to take a look at technologies that wouldn't have been more affordable otherwise. Mm. You mentioned Belgium. It's been a decade or, or so ago. I did a sabbatical in France. And that was the first place I ever saw the you know the ordering screen. We didn't even have to talk to a person. You just you know, entered your order there and it made sense. You know, the wage rates there were so much higher. And it was also good for me, too, because my French is terrible. So, I, you know, kind of killed two birds with one stone. And so, I, you know, that sort of thing you can imagine happening, you know, here over time, automation really throughout the entire food supply chain and the challenges that some of the meatpacking plants had with regard to COVID and their worker illnesses, you know, created a lot of conversation and a lot of investment in that space. It, you know, the, the challenge with R&D is it doesn't happen overnight. Its outcome may occur in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, but but the dynamics we're seeing now will probably lay the groundwork for some of those investments to build some fruit in the future. Yeah, and there have been a couple other examples. I was just thinking about the dairy industry in Australia when they were trying to compete with the mining industry and labor went to $40 an hour for you know unskilled labor and they couldn't compete. And all of a sudden, robotic milkers became much more prevalent in the dairy industry. And so we'll see that kind of technology adoption. Shifting gears here a little bit, you know, every good story needs a victim, a villain, and a vindicator. Inflation is is one of those stories that the media likes to to pump up. The victim here clearly is is the consumer. The vindicator are politicians, but they're searching for a villain, right? Who who's the villain in this story? Right, I, I think there is a villain here, and it's uh, it's a virus. <laughs> you know, COVID kind of caused a lot of this. Unfortunately, it's a faceless villain, so it's not one you can call in front of Congress. Again, I, I don't think that food manufacturers or food retailers are um, some kind of angels or something like that. I think if there's a profit opportunity, uh, they're going to try to take it. But I also think there's a lot more competition than people think um, out there that even within, let's say, animal protein, people can substitute among those proteins, um, substitute now towards plant-based proteins, any of the you know, CPG space. That's the other argument I hear t- sometimes for consumers is like, oh, food companies are going to use this as an opportunity to raise prices. Well, they always have opportunities to raise prices. Like, why didn't they do it before? Um, and so, you know, I, like I said, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the argument that that there isn't profit-seeking activity out there by firms. It's just hard for me to say that that is the cause for inflation because that that underlying motivation is always there. You know, it's interesting. Uh, right around the holidays, I was in the grocery store. You know, in my mask. I don't know who this woman was. I don't think I knew her. I was looking at ground beef and. And she made this comment to me. She said, oh, these retailers just trying to gouge us on our holiday meat. And I looked at her and I said, but we have inflation and everything is up, all food and other 
you know, other industries, like six to 7% on average. And she just looked at me like I was some kind of alien from like, this just was like an idea she'd never heard of. So she was flummoxed by me because here I was spouting, you know, inflation, the bigger picture. I was flummoxed by her because I'm like, you eat meatloaf for Christmas? This is the thing. People, you know... I think the villain is it's very easy to either say the food manufacturer or the retailer, except everybody's doing it. So it's happening in lockstep, right? I'm seeing that be where more of the ire is going versus towards my clients. Well, you know, interestingly, we did a a survey of 1,200 U.S. food consumers last month, and and I put a question on there asking, you know, use the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, meat prices have increased, whatever it was, 13% over the last year. Why do you think that's happening? And I gave a, a list of like 15 things. The top thing was, you know, COVID-related shutdowns. The next thing was increasing wage rates. The other one was higher feed prices. And of course, you know, these things like, you know, the retailer being concentrated, having market power, you know, maybe six or 7% of people said that was the reason. Now, you know, consumers may not actually know, but I think in terms of the narrative that's out there, that seems to be a lot more of the narrative in the news than it seems like at least showed up in our in our survey in that particular answer. Jason, on your on your surveys, have you ever asked how many people actually serve meatloaf for Christmas? <laughs> I have not asked that. The crazy thing is, is I could look it up because we track what people have eaten for the last 40 Christmases. And I can tell you meatloaf is not in the top 10. I would think it's not, personally. Yeah. yeah. Susan, are you sure she wasn't on the phone? Talking to somebody when 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 you when, no, when she starts talking she, about prices and you just to her you're just like the crazy person that came in and said it's inflation <laughs> what about inflation <laughs> so she was like I don't know I was talking to you about meatloaf and I, why are you why are you talking about inflation there's a crazy woman talking about inflation in the grocery store it wouldn't be the first time I was the crazy woman Kevin it would not <laughs> no we made eye contact over our masks she's on another podcast right now talking about some crazy lady that's just going around. <laughs> at the grocery store. <laughs> I'm really fun at the bar too. Give me a cocktail. Yeah, I uh, can't, can't wait. Can't wait. All right, Jason, thank you. You've been most generous with your time and insight as always. Uh, and, yeah. and can't thank you enough for taking the time to spend it with us today on Three Squares. And uh, we look forward to continued conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank y'all for asking me on. If you ever need a fourth square, you know where to call. We'll do it. Wow, what a great guest. Jason is always so insightful. Um, you know, he's one of the most highly respected economists uh, on the planet when it comes to food and agriculture, and for good reason. He's my favorite economist after Austin Goolsby, but I didn't want to tell him that Austin still has my heart. <laughs> well, Jason's pretty cool. I mean, as, as an economist, he's somebody that you can actually understand, and he's not, he's not afraid to take a position. I mean, what you're always looking for is the one-handed economist, right? Yeah. So He was great in the sense, especially as, as in the sense that he, he came out a couple times and was like, I know, I know I'm going to get some, you know, get some hate for this basically, but uh, no, it's great. And he didn't say that, you know, the end is in sight. Um, it's a little bit of a, this is going to be with us for a while is what I take away. Yeah. And I thought your point about labor, Susan, was spot on because if you're a restaurateur and you've, you've built your business model on labor costs being no more than 30% of your overall cost structure, that didn't work today. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that all gets washed out over the next year or two. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing we have coming up is uh, tax season, and a lot of people are not going to get that tax return that they count on every year. And it's going to be a surprise. Which makes me think it, it could all happen at once. You know what I mean? That, Like you said, that no tax return, uh, the constant social media that talks about, there's an there is definitely an undercurrent of, uh, to your point, Charlie, about the, the look looking for uh you know what's who's the antagonist here right uh and 
uh, whether or not it's billionaires or meat companies or CPGs in general or whatever it may be, I wonder whether or not the narrative of it's going to get worse or or meat prices are really expensive can, to Jason's point, cause uh, you know a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. And now it's time to head to the Three Squares inbox. If you would like to have your question answered by our benevolent food scientist, uh, feel free to shoot us an email at threesquaresmail at gmail.com. Same address if you are interested in sponsoring Three Squares. Uh, We are charting on Apple, so that's good news. Thanks to all of you who have downloaded and listened. We appreciate that. But again, it's three, the digit, the number three, squaresmail at gmail.com. In the inbox this week, dear squares. Uh, Growing up, there were four types of apples, the mushy, delicious, and a few others. Now apples have their own wing in the produce aisle, and it's pretty darn interesting. Where were they hiding these from us? Is there a crazy apple scientist out there making these new types? Sincerely, Mark from L.A. So, Kevin, what's up with the apples? Speaking of benevolent, there isn't a crazy, uh, you know, apple scientist out there. Actually, there kind of is. I mean, because I think when all of us were growing up, we probably were, you know, we knew that there were like four different types of apples, right? Like, you know, the red delicious and golden delicious and all that kind of stuff. And most of those were chosen just because they were tasty and they could get through the supply chain pretty easy. Uh, and then the thing that changed everything was Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp changed everything. Yes. And a lot of it had to do with the idea that a new apple could make a lot of uh, people happy and uh, make some money. I'm not a Honeycrisp fan. You're not? How could you not be a Honeycrisp fan? I don't know. I eat galas or sometimes I eat the green ones. It depends on my mood. <laughs> That's fascinating. Thank you for that. Uh, but it's it's unique in the sense of, at the time, it was just patented. And yes, you can patent an apple. Uh, you can patent the, you know, the production of that apple. And you can then, uh, you know, like in anything else, you can license that and actually take it and, you know, grow your own Honeycrisp. Now, what's interesting is, is that all the new apples that we're starting to see are not patented. They're actually trademarked. And that's what makes them unique because uh, sometimes they're called trademarked apples. Sometimes they're called club apples, which is actually really interesting. And that is a new wave of apples because you have to be in a certain club to basically be able to grow them. So unlike a patent, which actually expires, trademarks do not. So uh, all the ones that we're starting to see, so if you've heard of Sweet Tango or Cosmic Crisp or Envy or Jazz or Beyond Apples, if you've heard of things like Mighty Vine Tomatoes or Cotton Candy Grapes, those are trademarks. So it's very different. It's basically taking a commodity and marketing it and protecting it like a CPG. So I think you're going to see a lot more of these as you see this popularity. You're going to see more club apples. You're going to see more club uh, fruits and vegetables in general. So I think it's just a really interesting thing is that, yes, to the, to the uh, question, uh, where were they hiding these? Well, they hadn't developed them yet. Uh, and this the idea of how can we might be able to take a product such as a fruit or vegetable and actually trademark it like a CPG is a brand new concept. And it really speaks to this idea of how you can market and how you can use that to be able to uh, take something and put it something new in the produce section. Hey, so if you have a question, if you'd like to engage with us, please shoot us a quick email. You can also send us a voice memo at three squares mail, the number three squares mail at gmail.com. Also the same place if you want to offer your comments or if you're interested in sponsoring three squares. 
All right, let's check the label. Has this podcast expired? It is time for us to go. And thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. Three Squares is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beezing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And thanks to you for listening. Please hit the free subscribe button for more episodes and leave us a rating and review unless it's bad. And then I hope you hit the wrong button. Until next time, keep your plate clean and your glass full. We will see you soon on Three Squares. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 